0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: The first offshore oil and gas lease sales under the mansion mandated lease sales is this March. It looks like the global major oil players such as Exxon, Conoco, Marathon, BP and Shell may be returning to the US Gulf of Mexico big time. So much so that the smaller independents that have been filling the void as the majors either left the Gulf or significantly reduced activity in recent years are at risk of getting squeezed out with respect to new leases. To discuss all this, as well as the amazing technology of offshore oil drilling and the regulatory challenges faced by the Biden administration, we are joined by Louisiana-based Joe Limecooler. Joe is the Chief Operating Officer of Beacon Offshore Energy, LLC. Beacon is a producer of upstream oil and gas from assets located in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. Joe is responsible for all company offshore engineering and operations. From 2012 to 2019, he was Vice President of Drilling for LLOG Exploration, based in Louisiana. Before that, he was the Offshore Well Delivery Manager for Shell International, Ian Co., covering all Gulf of Mexico well operations. Joe is so well qualified in the field that he serves on the Board of Directors of the National Ocean Industries Association, and he's also Chair of their Health, Safety, and Environment Subcommittee. It was so great that Dr. Jay Lair, my previous co-host, set up this program. I sure miss that, Superman. Anyway, welcome back to the show, Joe.
2: Well, welcome back. Well, Tom, it's good to be back. It's pleasure to join you. It's a little bit of sweet. Uh, I consider Jay to be a a person I attended many a conference with in the past and to be a good friend. And it's uh, sad that he's no longer with us, but I'm sure he's absolutely with us in spirit today. And I can hear him asking more questions already in the back of my head.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, he'll he'll be glad that we actually are doing the show because he set it up, yep. you know. So, so I started out by talking about the mansion mandated lease sales is this March. So, can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, I also work with a, an organization called the Gulf Economic Alliance. It's it's kind of a smaller independence that go to Washington, and we kind of speak as one voice about what's important for the independents who work offshore in the deep water Gulf of Mexico, and even on the shelf of the Gulf of Mexico. So we had a chance to interface with Senator Manchin while the incredibly named Inflation Reduction Act was being put in place. And uh, Uh he fully understands the importance of oil and gas, its role Uh, right now in the dominating energy economy, and its role is going to stay that way for the foreseeable future. So he gets it. And therefore, he said, look, you need a plan to transition. And if there is no definitive plan that he can latch on to and understand, we can't just let oil and gas go. So he said, we're going to have oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico at a minimum frequency of at least once per year, offering up enough acreage that really equivalent is equivalent to having the whole western planning area and central planning area of the Gulf. For your readers, that's just draw a line south of Mobile, Alabama. Everything <clears throat> west of it is pretty much open for leasing. Everything east of it is not, including all the offshore related to Florida in the Gulf. <clears throat> so the central and western is still open. And, and if the federal government does not hold lease sales on an annual base for oil and gas drilling in the central and western area, which is currently open in the Gulf of Mexico, then you can't have any wind lease sales in that area, or maybe even all of offshore. I've lost track. Either way, you kind of put what I call a poison pill in there, recognizing that we need an energy strategy that involves all of the above. We need to continue to develop all of the above until it's clearly no longer needed. And I I just don't see that happening well into 2050. And interestingly enough, so does our federal government, the Energy Information Agency, an arm of the government whose data I've really grown to appreciate and and fully trust. They indicate that we are going to need considerable hydrocarbons all the way up to the year 2050. In fact, we're even going to need more then than we do now, even with the increase that they project in renewable energy. So oh, Jen, yeah. Senator Manchin gets it. That's why that mandate is in there. It's not subject to regulatory review. It is actually law. Wow. So that's interesting. So the first one is coming up uh, towards the end of March. and you mentioned that the major oil players, what role are they going to play? It's interesting as you prepare for a lease sale, uh, certainly among the independents uh, dependents such as Beacon. We're active in the lease sale. We plan to bid on leases that are close to existing leases we already have. So you can achieve critical mass. So projects can go forward. These deepwater projects are quite expensive. They go into the billions of dollars. So therefore you need a certain minimum volume to justify that kind of investment, especially for a company like us where it's private equity. <laughs> we are applying the money of our investors to make these things happen. So the first thing you have to do is acquire a lease. There's two ways to get that. You can go to the lease sale and just bid, and it's high bidder. And your, your bid has to meet the uh, the minimum bid that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, a division of the Department of Interior, sets. And if your bid is higher than what they consider to be the, the minimum bid, and they don't tell you what it is, uh, then you win the lease. So that's how it works. And smaller companies tend to band together. So we'll partner commonly in an area saying, hey, there's four or five leases in this area that we find attractive. Our partners are also looking at similar seismic data. And everyone says, hey, let's band together. Uh, Beacon, you're, you're a company that can actually operate. you have got the engineers and the operations staff to actually do things. Other companies have great subsurface geologists and geophysicists, but they don't have the engineering staff or the operations staff to actually go out there and do the physical work. So they will partner up and they will be a a joint venture partner with us. So two and three companies will band together and put together a bid. uh, Whereas that's less common among the majors, the Chevrons, the Shells, and the BPs. It's going to be interesting. What are the Shells, the BPs, and the, uh, Chevron's going to do. Those are the three big operators in the Gulf of Mexico now. Mm -hmm. Exxon, Conoco, and Marathon have been very, you mentioned those three earlier. They really have, uh, certainly Conoco and Marathon have been non-players for years. They they have no longer actively operating or securing new leases in the Gulf of Mexico. And Exxon has been very, very low in their activity recently in the Gulf of Mexico. They've been heavily concentrated and understandably so what's going on down in Suriname and Guyana. Mm -hmm. So I don't really expect to see Exxon Conoco and Marathon come back. In order to be a physical operator in the Gulf of Mexico, you must be an active member in one of the two well containment organizations, the HWCG or MWCC. And if you're not an active member, then you can't go out and actually do uh, new well work in the Gulf of Mexico. So mm-hmm. members are either active or inactive or not a member at all. Marathon is not a member at all right now of either organization. So the first indicator you look for, for new players coming into the Gulf is who is applied for membership in any one of those two organizations. So I, yeah. I, just, I think as I'm the chairman of the board of HWCG. So in that role, I kind of keep my finger on the pulse of, hey, what is what are the new players who are thinking about coming in?
1: Yeah. I,
3: so I it'll question. be
2: interesting the word on the street is that uh, Chevron BP and Shell are pretty much going to go out and for lack of a better word carpet bomb the gulf.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't mm-hmm. fully understand the lease system like you get a certain number of years a certain yes. number of barrels how, how does it work? Sure.
2: So that if you can go on to the government's website Department of Interior type in boem.gov okay. and you can pull up all the grid blocks in the offshore The offshore leases are divided up into into pretty large areas of about uh, distinct areas of the Gulf. Oh, I would say the roughly maybe 150 by uh, 200 miles. Oh, wow. Within that, they put a grid in place. And each grid is three mile by three mile blocks. So there's a block, maybe the the 801st block of the Mississippi Canyon area. It's a three by three simple square, Mm -hmm. three miles by three miles. Yeah, 15,560 acres. And you bid on that lease. Now your oil zone that you're looking for may extend just in that one three mile block. It may extend over four, five, or six blocks. Mm-hmm. So it really gets interesting how the checkerboard plays out. Mm-hmm. So, so when
1: you when you have a certain area, yeah. uh are you drawing oil from the same reserve as or reservoir as you others may. with nearby
2: areas? You may. That's correct. So that's why there's it, it, a positioning game that goes on. There's a little bit, okay, do I just bid on the sweet spots of this oil zone that I've, potential oil zone that I've identified? Do I bid on all of them or do I just go in and try and get the sweet spots? And then if others have, uh, I, I get the sweet spot, I've got the best well in that area. You can go through a process, what's called a unitization where all of the players who own the blocks over a particular oil field, that aerial coverage, is you come up with a plan over, okay, I think so much of the oil is on my block, so much is on yours. So therefore we're gonna come up with a a percentage of ownership and we're gonna name one, one oil company will be the physical operator. They will do all the operations on it. The others will pay their fair share of the cost and get their fair share of the, oh. uh, of the oh, I
1: see. so you don't have you don't have uh, wells side by side competing to see who can suck out the most oil
2: sometimes you do sometimes oh. you do oh. right. so you know within a, once once you establish a unit or a block or an area if you haven't established a unit or a block you can get into a competitive situation where oh. you can drill up to within a couple hundred feet of a lease line you can't cross it uh-huh okay but you can produce within a couple hundred feet of a lease line and you can literally suck the other person dry. It's pretty wow. rare. Most of the time people recognize that, that competitive things and, and, and they come to their senses and come, come to a viable, fair commercial agreement on, uh, okay, how much of the oil sits on your side of the fence and how much is on my side of the fence, we'll, we'll negotiate. And sometimes um, those negotiations get quite complex because they'll link it to, well, in this field over here, we, we need you guys to give us a little more pipeline access. So you give me a little more pipeline access on that pipeline. I'll give you this acreage over here. Mm-hmm. It is horse trading extraordinaire.
1: I'll bet. Now, now it's really interesting because it strikes me that if two oil companies buy two plots of, i guess it's ocean surface really um then there would be some pressure on each of them to get their operation going before the others suck it dry
2: (laughs) that's the other thing so all that comes into play uh, as the chess game plays out it's like okay right now in in the gulf of mexico there are about 20 deep water rigs actively drilling that is the full market every rig that can be contracted in us gulf of mexico is contracted on a Mm -hmm. global basis Every rig that is capable of working right now is working. That's a total rig fleet of somewhere around 160 to 170 deep water rigs all over the world. Right. There are only 11 left that have not been reactivated. They're in what's called a cold stack condition. The engines have gone cold. They're just sitting there or tied up to the dock somewhere. Mm -hmm. And to take a rig that hasn't worked with the engines turning and everything functional, it, it runs you around, I would guess, $80 million to reactivate a rig.
1: Right. But I guess if it's sitting there, I guess yeah. losing money also if it's not operating.
2: Yes, there, there's there's what they call uh you know storage cost and everything that goes with that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So now
1: I wonder if you could take a step back and talk mm-hmm. about how we actually drill for oil in the Gulf of Mexico because it, it's a pretty pretty amazing technology. You know, I'm kind of curious to know what your first impressions were when you visited an offshore well.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you what, that was uh I've been uh, incredibly lucky. There's no other way to put it. So I started my career with a master's degree in petroleum engineering from the University of Wyoming. Okay. And uh, I interviewed with Shell down in Louisiana. And I was just fascinated by the offshore environment, never even having been on an offshore rig. And when I went back home to Laramie and told my wife how the visit went, she goes, oh my goodness, we're going to Louisiana. I said, yeah, (laughs) I would like to do this. So so we packed up the two kids, and we drove from Laramie all the way down to New Orleans, got settled in. And they they put me in what they called uh, their eastern division. And the deep water Gulf of Mexico and the east side of the Gulf, between New Orleans and Mobile, in what's called an area called Mississippi Canyon, that's where Shell was active. And uh, Shell was a, a pioneer in the deep water and recognized globally in that. Center of Excellence for Global Deepwater Drilling was started by Shell in the late 80s out of New Orleans and their global center of for deep water drilling was in New Orleans for years, and that's the division I was put in.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the very first rig I went out on offshore was a rig called the Discoverer Seven Seas, and it was operating in 7,200 feet of water in 1987. Mm. So that was a world record at the time. So the first yeah. offshore rig I went on was drilling the deepest water well ever drilled.
1: <laughs> I'll bet and it was big, eh?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's big. But now we're near the size of the ones we have today.
1: Uh-huh. How, how big but, is ones that we have today? They're like, from, from what I see, they look like little cities.
2: They are. It's the size of a cruise ship, pretty close. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we are right now, Beacon is drilling a project called Shenandoah, and it will be the it, Chevron is doing a similar project called Anchor, and between Shenandoah and Anchor, those will be the world's first projects that are developing oil fields where the pressure in the earth is so high that when the oil comes up to the seafloor, you need equipment rated up to 20,000 pounds of pressure. Oh, wow. Those are the highest pressure wells in the world. So Shenandoah will come on production by late 2024. Okay. That's, that's the goal. And uh, Anchor is not not too different. They come on a little earlier than us. And uh, that rig is called the Titan. The rig we have is called the Atlas. And those two are the world's first, what they call eighth generation deepwater drill ships. These are incredible capable ships. They can handle pressures up to 20,000 pounds. They can manage and lift pipe up to 3 million pounds. Mm-hmm. And we drill wells down to between 32 and 36,000 feet.
1: Now it's 36,000 feet. That would be the depth of the <clears throat> of the water before you hit No,
2: that's that the, the water depth's about six, six thousand feet of water. So we oh, go, okay. we just run everything through six thousand feet of water and then we start drilling the well. We'll start okay. out with a 42-inch uh pipe or or what we call uh you know jet casing. So we've got a, a water jet kind of suspended on the end of that pipe and a uh a 30 uh, a 42 inch drill bit that sticks out inside the pipe and it drills down and we'll put a couple hundred feet of that very, very thick wall, 42 inch pipe. And we'll kind of push it into the soft sediment of the Gulf of Mexico. We'll turn on our, what we call a a mud, a mud motor, which Mm -hmm. is nothing more than a, a positive displacement pump, which sits at the very, very end of the drill string. And just the pump pressure turns the bit, the drill pipe, spin very slowly and that actually drills the well below the 42 inch what we call jet pipe you yeah. kind of jet it in place think of a big massive water pick
1: <laughs> well yeah it's 42 inches like that's more than three feet in diameter is that that's the size of the drill
2: yeah that's um we start off with what really is closer to a mine shaft than mm-hmm. say a drill hole oh, yeah so, for sure and we put that in there because the pipe has to be, it has to be pretty, pretty wide to handle the bending loads when you attach a rig the size of the, of the Atlas to that wellhead. Mm-hmm. So now we'll drill down and we'll run inside below that. We'll run 36 inch pipe, followed by 28 inch pipe. And then below the 28 inch, we will run 22 inch, mm-hmm. 18 inch, 16 inch, and then we'll run 14 inch casing very thick wall from about 26,000 feet all the way up to the mudline, mm-hmm. And that gives yeah. me a super high strength pipe to handle any pressures we would encounter as we drill into the oil zones down below, which tend mm-hmm. in this case to actually below, be below massive sections of pure salt.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. now you're talking about high pressures. Uh, I mean, surely that would be a good thing because you don't have to pump the oil and it comes out on its own.
2: All the oil in the Gulf, and none of the oil in the Gulf of Mexico is pumped out. It all flows out on, on pressure that is actually in the earth. So you use the pressure in the earth as your drive force to get the oil to flow into the well bore. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that done, you will. We uh, don't install well. I shouldn't say that. Shell has a project called Perdido, where the oil flows into big tanks that sit on the seafloor, mm-hmm. and then into those tanks. Or caissons, they have electric submersible pumps that pumps the oil from the seafloor, which I believe is in around 9,000 feet of water, up to the surface. So we pump oil from the seafloor up, and that's only really done on one field in the Gulf. But for the most part, all of the other fields, under its own pressure, the oil flows out of the well. It flows into what's called a subsea tree, Mm -hmm. has a series of valves on it. And that subsea tree also has a lot of chemical injection points, and uh, you'll you'll inject a lot of chemicals in with the oil, a lot of methanol, a lot of hydrate inhibitors, because what also comes out with the oil is gas.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, and it's very very cold in the Gulf of Mexico. Ice is a big problem for us. It's eighty degrees down here at the end of February in Louisiana, and I'm worried about ice offshore. Right really, now because at those wow. pressures. At those pressures, you know, those pressures in six thousand feet of water is so great that if you take a little bit of natural gas and you mix it with oil, it'll instantly form what's called a hydrate, ice. It's wow, in, is that right? Absolutely. And, huh. if, and so we put, uh, you know, inhibitors in there, typically methanol, uh, that will alcohols and whatnot that inhibits the formation of the of the, uh, of, the met- of the natural gas ice. Mm-hmm. so that we don't ice up our flow lines because that we've done that a few times to where the, the pump that's supplying the inhibitor injection that the oil needs to mix with as it flows from the well up to the platform you mm-hmm. don't want it to form ice
1: yeah i guess do you ever have like these explosive wells the way they do on land you know in the old days in texas You'd see these these images of booming wells, you know, blasting out oil way high into the sky. Does that ever happen at a a rig in the ocean?
2: Oh, it would if we didn't have the equipment that I just described that can handle those pressures. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the last thing you want. Uh, The oil never sees the light of day. It, it, It flows from the well straight into a pipeline or a flow line up to a platform where the oil and the gas are separated. The water is, uh, if, if the wells start to produce water, and they often do, they'll go through uh, centrifuges or hydrocyclones that, uh, that spin at tremendous RPMs and use centrifugal force to separate the oil from the water and the gas. So that when it goes to the pumps that are located on the platform, that's what generates most of the noise on these offshore platforms is the compressors okay. running to pump the oil from the offshore platform up to 150 miles all the way to other platforms in the Gulf that then increase the pressure and pump it all the way to the refiner.
1: It's actually coming from the oil rig to, or the platform, it's coming from okay. there to the land by pipe.
2: Correct. Now there is one, one, one FPS, floating production system, in the Gulf where the oil doesn't flow into a pipeline, it flows into a series it goes into a storage vessel, which then transfers it to tankers, which then bring it ashore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of those types of facilities being installed in Guyana, in Suriname, in northern South America, and a lot of uh, production facilities similar to that in Brazil. But in so the Gulf what, of Mexico, we have the benefit of probably the most extensive pipeline network on the seafloor in the world, and we take advantage of that, and it's a lot more uh, cost-efficient to uh, just... Have a pump on a platform and, and pump it via pipeline into straight into the refining the pipeline network on shore which then sends it to the refiners.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah I understand. So, so why would they have no pipes in some cases? Is it because it's too far offshore? Yeah,
2: like you look in, in Suriname and Guyana right now there, there's no refining capability, there's no place to, to pipeline it too. Oh, okay. I mean yeah Venezuela has refineries but those are pretty limited in their capabilities and whatnot so uh, you need to transport that oil to, you need to get it onto a tanker because, the you know, Suriname and Guyana have a very little uh, local demand. Mm-hmm. So therefore Exxon's overproducing down there and that oil is eventually making its way up into the U.S.
1: Yeah. So, so if you don't, if you don't actually need pipes in some cases, that means you could go pretty far offshore.
2: Well, there's a challenge there. If, um, uh, you may have a, you may be a case where I need to put in a pipeline. What do I do with the gas? Because all oil, right. oil produces a mixture of oil and gas. There is always some degree of gas enclosed in the oil. Mm-hmm. Typical Gulf of Mexico oil will have one thousand two hundred and fifty uh, cubic feet of natural gas for every barrel of oil. Oh wow! That we produce. That's valuable. I mean, oh, it's why valuable. It's very valuable. It's very valuable. And, and mm-hmm. it is considered a greenhouse gas. And in the Gulf of Mexico, we are not allowed to vent any gas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't get a permit to vent or flare any gas. Now, you get into emergency situations to where there's an upset in your process train. You, we quickly need to shut things in, close the pressure in on the wells, and, and for safety reasons, dispose of the gas. So mm-hmm. you're allowed to flare or burn off the gas to get to a safe, low pressure what we call blowdown condition, but that, that's the only scenario whereby you are allowed to flare gas in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. You can't by design and by intention, flare off gas in the Gulf of Mexico.
1: Is that a new development? or Because no, you, you always been, think of these, these uh, old images of flaring all so the time.
2: It has been, at, at, at one level or another, it's been in place throughout my career. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to have provisions in there where older facilities, you could flare more And then the younger ones, understandably so, the regulations on what you can and can't do with regards to a flaring gas offshore has gotten tighter and tighter. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that that's a good thing. You don't want this is this resource ultimately is owned by the taxpayers.
1: So do you find other countries are as environmentally friendly as we are?
2: No. I, I don't think so. The, the Gulf of Mexico, what's interesting is you take a look, and I'm also, as you mentioned earlier, I'm on the chairman of the board of NOAA, And it, it's fascinating. NOAA has done a great job. If you go to their website, they've got off I encourage anyone listening to go to the website and, and take a look at the work that NOAA has done understanding the importance of the US offshore. So the deep water offshore, because the wells are so productive, and from four wells, such as Shenandoah, just from four wells alone, our, our, our goal is to produce anywhere from 80 to 100,000 barrels of oil a day. So that's an average of between 20 to 25,000 barrels of oil per well, not a field, a well. So therefore, the, yeah, I, I, I do go through quite a bit of fuel. You know, I'll have some CO2 emissions that on a total basis, you know, you say, gosh, that seems like a lot. But wait a minute, what am I getting for that? Well, what I'm getting is roughly in the deep water, it averages anywhere from 15 to 20 kilograms of CO2 for every barrel of oil we produce. Mm, Well, that's not too much. It isn't, especially in light of looking at, you know, if you look at some of the other oil that you see produced in the world, as you get into Venezuela, you get into overseas, you could be looking at anywhere from two to three times that amount.
1: Mm-hmm. Just for listeners to understand, NOIA, that's National Ocean Industries Association. Right.
2: Yeah. NOIA yeah. represents uh, the oil and gas industry, represents the wind industry. It's all the industries that operate in the offshore. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: the lowest CO2 barrels in the world come from deep water, and the newer assets in the deep water, such as Shenandoah, will have the lowest of the low. Mm-hmm. Our, our wow. project right now, we're estimating somewhere between five to seven kilograms of CO2 for every barrel of oil we produce. So it Sweet. is the lowest carbon barrels on the planet, mm-hmm. easily. Yeah, and that, I, when, and a, lot of the, a lot of the numbers you see, that's just to get the oil to oil the surface. But my argument is we need to look at what that CO2 footprint is of getting that oil to the United States. Mm-hmm. That oil that's produced in the Middle East has to go on a super tanker and get transported oh, halfway yeah, around the coast. They absolutely. don't include that. No, you have to when you're looking at it from a US perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think that we ought to be encouraging more off oil, especially if the Energy Information Agency of the U.S. government, the EIA, is correct. And in their analysis that they came out with last year, I was shocked when they showed that despite the best efforts of the renewable industry to supply reliable energy, the amount of new energies coming from oil and gas in the year 2050 needs to be more than what we're doing today.
1: Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm.
2: That more.
1: Yeah, I, I guess we're pretty lucky that we have the Gulf of Mexico because I understand it's a pretty uh, exceptional place geologically. Is that it correct?
2: is. It's, oh, it's a fascinating place. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, the best way to compare it, if you, if you can get your mind around going back a couple million years, is the Gulf of Mexico back in the day when a lot of these deposits were formed was very similar to what you see in the Great Salt Lake and the Dead Sea the mm-hmm. gulf of mexico is not connected to the oceans it was a vast inland sea and it laid down incredible deposits of pure salt mm-hmm. the water was salt saturated and as that water cooled every year the crystallization temperature would be reached and salt crystals would fall out of the water so you get massive thousands of feet of salt now on top of that you pile on thousands of feet of sediment from the mississippi river and the rio grande right. and now you've got So much pressure on that salt, the salt becomes plastic Mm -hmm. and it starts to flow through the earth and the salt finds the weakest points in the earth and it rises up and a fascinating place. Listeners can go to their cupboard and pull out a bottle of Tabasco sauce Mm -hmm. and one of the most interesting places where the salt actually rises up, pierces the surface of the earth and rises up such that it looks like an island. Oh, yeah. That's called, that's called Avery Island, Louisiana, where they dug into that massive uplift feature and found pure salt. Mm-hmm. And that is the salt that goes into Tabasco sauce. Oh, that's
1: cool. And, and, and the oil is typically underneath the salt.
2: Exactly. So the so the salt rises up and in a couple of places that actually pierces the surface. And that's what you have at Avery Island. But in other mm-hmm. places of the Gulf, it sees a weak a weak zone and now the salt spreads out laterally. So it almost looks like these gigantic mushroom clouds and under the salt are vast oil deposits. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the last five to 10 years that we've been able to have improved seismic processing technology where we can see below the salt seismically.
3: Mm-hmm. So we're finding yeah.
2: fields like Shenandoah. A lot of the big major oil fields are in a formation called the Wilcox. It, it's a very sand rich formation that's full of oil trapped below the salt. And it's incredibly productive. Uh, Chevron was one of the okay. first people to discover it. Our the Shenandoah leases, and we're now developing yeah. the Wilcox. So,
1: when you're looking for oil, I guess the salt is a giveaway. That's that's where you should look.
2: The uh, salt's everywhere, and not mm-hmm. at, and not everywhere underneath the salt are, are there structures that contain oil. So, you know, you still have about I don't know. Industry overall probably has a forty percent success rate looking for oil beneath salt. Mm-hmm. So six out of 10 wells would be dry.
1: Yeah, well, we have to go for a break now, but after okay. the break, I'm hoping you can tell me what the geologists do to understand if there's oil under under a salt deposit. So can we talk about that when we come back after the break? Sure. Yeah, okay, good. So stay tuned, we'll be right back.
0: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well,
1: we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a
0: quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, You're ready for anything. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD, HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none
1: of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America Climate Plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Well, I'm back with Joe Lamcooler. He's the chief operating officer of Beacon Offshore Energy, LLC. Beacon's a producer of upstream oil and gas from assets located in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. And I had a question, Joe, when you're looking at all these salt deposits, how do geologists decide what are likely to have oil under them?
2: They actually have to put together a story, believe it or not. They uh, They have to put together how did this area develop geologically? How was the structure formed? that the oil would seep into and be trapped. So they have to come up with a scenario whereby, okay, what's the source? Where did the oil originate from deeper in the earth?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then as the oil moves through the rock, what was, what was the transport mechanism for the oil to get into the area where it is now trapped? And a lot of interesting things occur. Since oil is lighter than water, it rises up and it start, tries to always get to the highest point in the structure it can find. And then once it can't rise through it anymore, it starts getting trapped. So the oil below it backs up. Mm-hmm. Well, oil will be in lighter than water. The pressure in the oil actually starts to increase the more oil you have below. And mm-hmm. it's not unusual for that trap to actually get blown to where oil moved through, it built up, and then it built up enough pressure below it. So that it just simply pushed through the rock and okay. continued upward into other structures. So that's called a blown trap. So the geologist has to put together a story about, OK, first off, where did the where did the sediments come from that have permeability? Because if you drill into something that's extremely tight, like a shale, it's just not going to flow. Uh, we don't frack shales offshore. It's just hard too expensive. And the amount of volumes you get are just inadequate relative to the cost. So we have to look for conventional sandstone or limestone reservoirs offshore. So where's your source rock? Where did the oil come from and how did it get trapped? They put together that whole story around a, an area that can capture over time how the geologic development occurred. And if they can convince uh, you know, the exploration manager that this whole thing makes sense, that there's a high probability of these three things occurring. So prospects are evaluated with three things that have what they call a piece of S or probability of success. Uh-huh. What's the probability there's oil in this area? All right, 90%. Okay, great. What's the probability that we've got adequate rock with adequate permeability that the oil will actually flow out? Probability of a reservoir, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, I don't know, 80%. Great. What's the probability that I have a trap, that the oil is actually trapped, that it just didn't seep through? Mm I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe 60%. So you multiply those three together and you come up with an overall probability that you've got a viable prospect that you can develop of about 40 to 50 percent. That's enough to maybe go out in there and let's go, let's go spend a couple hundred, let's go spend a hundred million dollars and go find out.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, I can tell by your tone of voice that this is something you really like doing. Would you encourage young people to get into this field? Is it something that has lots
2: of opportunity? I think it does. And and unfortunately, oil and gas is, is at so much in disfavor, and, and inappropriately so in my view, that the number of petroleum engineering graduates that are coming out of UNS, UNS, universities, believe it or not, in this environment is at an all-time low.
1: Oh, yeah. So yeah. if they do go through for petroleum engineering, are there lots of jobs for them? The few well, that do go right
2: through? Now, the, right now, I, of the universities I'm involved with, the graduating class is 100% job placement at very, oh. very highest starting salaries of any degree. And uh, overall, total petroleum engineering graduates in the country is 250.
1: Oh, man. So they, they have great opportunities. So they have great opportunities. So what schools would you recommend they go to for this training?
2: Well, I'm kind of biased. I went to the University of Wyoming, so I'm I'm very much a UW advocate. I serve on the advisory board for the Petroleum Engineering Department, as well as the School of Engineering. The research capabilities they have out there, especially with regard to optimizing fracking or not, and the simulation capabilities they have are second to none. So, you know, got to go with the home team on this one. So uh, very much an advocate of UW. Other unbelievably excellent schools are the Colorado School of Mines is excellent. Uh, University of Texas, Texas A&M, University of Oklahoma uh, do an excellent job. University of North Dakota has established a very good department there. Those are the schools that, you know, come LSU, of course, right here in my backyard is also uh, an excellent school as well. Go online and check the list. There's only, believe it or not, I think 20 or 21 schools that actually offer an accredited degree in petroleum engineering to undergraduates.
1: Mm-hmm. What would be a typical starting salary to kind of whet their appetite? <laughs>
2: Oh, it was as high as 120000 uh, It's probably oh, down wow. around and uh, upper 90s to 100. But it's uh, increasing. I, I think we're going to see it an increase and increase. Uh, that's probably about where it's going to be. A lot so of companies that's... will spend a lot of money training mechanical engineers to be petroleum or uh, petroleum engineers. And uh-huh. I think it's short-sighted on, on that part. I think a petroleum engineering degree is an incredibly practical degree. Uh, very applicable to the work you'll do when you get out. And uh, of all the engineering disciplines, I think that's the one that uh, educates you the most to do exactly what you're trained for when you come out.
1: Yeah. So a graduate starts at 100K. Wow. They really win the lottery if they go into that field.
2: They do. But, you know, uh, but you know, history has always been a very up and down industry. And I think that's changing. Because mm-hmm. the level of investment on a global basis has just been so inadequate that as the world recovers from COVID and the world's economy tries to pick up and grow, uh, there's no reserve capacity of, of oil anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think OPEC, OPEC says, oh, geez, we're, 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 we're going to cut back on production. And it's kind of crazy because you're going to cut back on production. Well, you guys haven't met your production targets in years. Mm-hmm. Are you so, really back or are you just admitting that this is exactly what we can produce?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so how long do you think the Gulf of Mexico is going to still be an attractive place
2: to drill? It's at least decades ahead of it still. So I don't know if anything will ever open up on the East Coast or, or the Florida Gulf Coast or, or the West Coast. It's ironic. You see Canada developing their eastern province, North Atlantic, is really starting to pick up. And they've always produced oil offshore Canada, and nobody ever seems to have a problem with that. I don't think Canada has a reputation of being an environmentally irresponsible country or government, but yet they seem to manage uh, proper development of their offshore oil gas leases on the East Coast. But yet it seems to be the third rail for, for America to consider that.
1: Yeah, so why are we not, why is America not developing Atlantic offshore oil drilling?
2: I think it centers around two events. The first one was the oil spill in Santa Barbara Mm -hmm. back in the, uh, was it the 60s or 70s when when that occurred? And that was a disaster. And I think the country was starting to get over that. And then we had Macondo occur. Mm -hmm. And and Macondo was was definitely an outlier. Those are the two major events that have put oil on the U.S. beaches. Ironically, they were about 50 years apart. Mm-hmm. And you look at all the wells and all the activity that's happened over that time span, and we've had two major events, both extremely regrettable.
1: Just so people know, Macondo, that's the one that they called Deepwater the deep horizon. horizon.
2: Yeah, that was the one yeah. that they named the movie after the rig, the uh-huh. Deepwater Horizon disaster. So yeah. industries has researched what happened there, to a tremendous degree. To their credit, the professionals and the Department of Interior that manage us and approve our well designs have done a very good job of understanding what needed to change in well designs and putting those requirements into the regulations. We have to show that we can fully contain a well throughout the whole entire process, drilling production through the life of the well. And when that happened, Uh, The industry did not have on-the-shelf capping stacks, on-the-shelf capping procedures to immediately cap that kind of a blowout. We now, what we certainly do now, Mm -hmm. Uh, both organizations, MWCC and HWCG, have multiple capping stacks. Both have actually deployed their capping stacks and actually demonstrated that this is not something, should it occur again? And it's very unlikely it will occur again. It's never impossible. Anyone who thinks she can do this level of, of industrial activity and zero risk is kidding themselves. So mm-hmm. there's always a risk, but I think it's properly managed and mitigated so that the chances that should occur again are, I, I think, at least, I don't know, maybe tenfold less. Mm-hmm. And our ability to respond is, is, is tenfold better. So the impacts mm-hmm. are going to be significantly less should it ever happen again. And the chances of it happening are significantly less based on the changes in well designs. It's interesting. A year and a half ago, we did a drill, and I wanted to test it. How long would it take from the time somebody said go, and we said go on a Sunday afternoon? How long would it take to get one of these capping stacks mobilized, fully pressure tested, moved to the dock, and ready to deploy and put on a vessel out in the Gulf and in the water and the well capped? So we just tested how long would it take for us to mobilize this massive capping stack, from storage, mobilize it, test it, transport it, have it ready to go on a boat. How long do you think that took? I don't know, maybe a week? 36 hours.
1: Oh, wow. So, so when I'm at a, you know environmental group meeting and they go on and on about Deepwater Horizon, I can mm-hmm. say, yeah, but they couldn't cap it the way they can
2: now. Exactly. Now they can do it in just you know, a day and a bit. We can do it in a matter of days. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, we, we, you know, there's a, we drill with the federal government. We drill with the coast guard, we drill with the department of interior and and in this drill, when you have oil blowing out, you have to make, the first thing you have to do is secure the site. So we use dispersants like Dawn, chemical similar to Dawn, and we will actually mobilize vessels out there and and start putting dispersants right there at, at, at the oil as it comes out of the well and what that does is it forces the gas to dissolve into the into the water of the ocean, the natural gas, and that makes it safe to work. So we can quickly go out and put a capping stack on. So we go through approval processes from the federal regulators, including the EPA, even in emergency use, and you get the approval. And what we showed in that drill is that we can respond faster in the physical space of moving equipment than the regulatory agencies can respond with approval to move forward. Ah. <laughs> that was eye opening for us and them. And so, right now, after that exercise, you know, the regulatory authorities are responding properly. They're saying, "Hey, we've got to speed this up." These guys have shown an ability to respond faster than we can come through with our approvals. We, uh, yeah. rightfully so, nobody wants to be on the critical path, saying, "Guys, we could cap this, but we're waiting on you to say go." Yeah, that's how well things are are, are working. Those are good things, in my view.
1: Mm-hmm. We've really learned lessons from the Macondo
2: blowout. Oh, I, I think tremendously so, yes.
1: Yeah. Now, what fraction of U.S. oil is actually coming from offshore? Because it sounds like it's a great source when you look at the pollution, the yeah. CO2 production, uh, uh, and all sorts of things.
2: It's uh, 15 to 20% of the total. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is uh, three quarters of that comes from just 18 offshore platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Noya's got a great graphic where they show if you took those 18 platforms and you were able to float them and, and just put them right next to one another, it would occupy an area equivalent to just seven city blocks. So, out oh, of the wow. surface footprint of seven city blocks, right. we obtain well over 1.3 million barrels of oil a day, roughly equivalent to 10% of what the country produces we get from seven city blocks.
1: Yeah, wow. How, yep. how many people would live on one of the biggest rigs?
2: Oh, gosh, that would be the Atlas. And right now, I think mm-hmm. we've got uh, what they call POD personnel on board of about 175. They can actually ha- handle up uh, over 200.
1: Mm-hmm. And do they live out there for an extended period of time?
2: Uh, they do 21 days on, 21 days off.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'll bet
2: they're paid well, too. <laughs> they are paid well. And, but it's still a struggle to get people that want to go out there and do that work. You mm-hmm. know, if you want to be with Cora rastabout, one of the guys and gals that unloads the boats and, and moves the equipment on there, it, it's uh, it still pays handsomely well. High school education is all you need. Even uh-huh. for any of the jobs out there, that's really all, all that is needed. The drilling contractors do a fabulous job with their computers, their simulators, their joysticks. And uh, all the devices they have, the train folks, uh, you're incredibly well paid, but it's, it's not for everybody. And they're struggling to find people.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned HWCGLC. Can mm-hmm. you tell us more about that organization? I understand it's a well-containment organization.
2: Yeah, it's uh, 16 companies right now. And we've pulled our resources as well as our staff to focus on actually providing the capping stacks and, and the equipment that is needed to handle a blowout situation in the Gulf of Mexico or contain any well in the Gulf of Mexico that the member companies have a working interest or actually control.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: we, uh, you have to pay your well containment fee per well that supports that organization, maintenance of the equipment, drills, uh, equipment testing. Equipment is tested, we drill on it. it. It has an annual budget in the range of $40 million Mm -hmm. That uh, keeps all that equipment in good shape, tested, ready to go, and uh, the whole entire organization drills on it. Um, Each company will supply certain engineers with certain talents, and we all work as one. No matter what happens to any one of the member companies, all members respond with with their personnel to ensure that everyone's got that capability and we prove up that capability with drills each year.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm a mechanical engineer. Listening to this <laughs> makes me think I should have gone into geological engineering or oh, or petroleum you know. engineering. I mean, it's such an amazing field, you know. That, well, that shows you
2: so, actually appreciating and learning things that you're Yeah, That's, <laughs> that's
1: right. Well, I'm really glad Jay, Jay got us on together. Um, yeah, we only have another seven or eight minutes, but okay. I'm hoping you can talk about what you see is the next advancements or opportunity in U.S. offshore and Gulf of Mexico and outside the Gulf of Mexico as well.
2: I think we've gone as deep as we can go in the Gulf of Mexico. If we go out any deeper, you'll be in Mexican waters. So
1: <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: proving that we can operate through the full range of, of water depths in the U.S. Has, has already been done. Now it's just understanding, greater understanding of the subsurface of the, the hydrocarbon system that I described and how that interrelates to all of the subsalt drilling in the gulf is the next step i think we're just still scratching the surface of that the other thing that's fascinating about the gulf of mexico is in the older areas of the gulf of mexico where drilling was first done in the shallow waters of what's called the shelf the wet sand so it's full of, of uh, you know seawater or or salt water but they're very 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 large they're very very prolific and the rock strength is really high and the pressure in the water is very low. Mm-hmm. So Exxon is doing a fabulous job. And, and all other companies such as Talos on the independent side, they have said, well, look, you can argue about whether it's valid. You can argue about whether it's justified. But if we can actually inject CO2 into those reservoirs and the U.S. refining base and a lot of the manufacturing base is, is heavily concentrated along the industrial Gulf Coast of the U.S., if you take those emissions and take that CO2 and just with a short pipeline, uh, a few miles offshore, uh, inject CO2 into these reservoirs, we have the ability to actually capture carbon from from emissions, not free air capture. I don't, I don't see that as a game changer. I see that as a not a very effective use of, of money and resources. But what if we could take these concentrated streams coming off the coal-fired power plants, natural gas power plants, the industrial processes of the chemical plants on the Gulf Coast transport that via pipelines, CO2 pipelines, and inject it offshore into these reservoirs. You have the lowest carbon capture and storage cost in the world, and yeah. Exxon has done a great job, in my view, of showing that it's, it's not as costly as you might think. And mm-hmm. if we have to maintain the reliance and the benefits that hydrocarbons provide, and it's, it's they're massive. Can we actually do it in a way that's actually carbon neutral? Mm-hmm. Not that far-fetched. So they
1: take the CO2 and they'd use it to get more oil out of wells that otherwise mm-hmm. would be considered dry?
2: You can do that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when CO, what's, what's fascinating is when CO2 hits oil, it swells. Mm-hmm. You ever had that spray foam come out of your can like the uh, like those, uh, insulation foam? ever seen oh, that? Oh
1: yeah, Yeah, for yeah.
2: sure. Well, that's what happens when CO2 hits oil. It swells. So if you take a a, a reservoir, and they've been doing this in Wyoming for years, it's called CO2 injection. And Mm -hmm. as soon as the CO2, you have an injection well that's kind of low on the structure, the CO2 hits, it it actually swells up, and it pushes oil out of pore spaces where the oil was never really driven or pushed out before. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, if all you're going to do is put a straw into an oil reservoir and just let the pressure just bleed off, you're only going to get, at most... 20 to 30 percent, 70 percent of the oil is still there.
1: Oh, is that right? Yeah.
3: Huh. So to
2: get that other oil to move and, and move it towards a producing well, I, I need to have a drive mechanism and I need to have energy into the system. Well, what if I mm-hmm. pump CO2 in there? So you can make an argument that maybe there's some of the oil fields in this in the shelf where you can use CO2 injection to actually get more oil out of areas that have already been had, had production. And get greater value out of it. And at the same time, produce carbon negative or carbon neutral oil. Yeah. So you could
1: end with adding decades more oil supply from the Gulf that way.
2: Oh, I think so. But that's a challenge because CO2, when you mix CO2 with water, what do you get? Carbonic Carbonic
1: acid.
3: acid, Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's very corrosive. So you can't Mm -hmm. use the wells that were there before. You have to put new wells. Uh, And then... To get credit for actually getting the CO2 put away, you've got to have monitoring wells, you've got to prove that the CO2 is not leaking off to an area where you don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. So, understandably so, the federal government says, Hey, you want to get the credits, the tax credits for putting that CO2 away? You got to prove to me it truly is put away, it isn't leaking out. Mm-hmm. And I uh, was interestingly enough, I was at a conference and and I asked the, the regulator in the state of Texas, I said, so. Who at the end of the day, who, who's liable for the CO2 that was stored? Is mm-hmm. it the company doing the storing, or is it the company who generated the CO2? And he said, oh, it's a no-brainer. It's the company doing the storage. Mm. Well, how do I account for that liability cost in my project economics? I've got to account for the lifetime liability of that CO2 getting out, and then how do they assess damages associated with that?
1: Yeah, that doesn't seem right. I mean, it's, you aren't actually generating the CO2, you're using it. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. So surely the responsible party should be those who actually produce it in the first place.
2: You would think. So then how do you how do you value that liability going forward? Is there a bonding agreement that the person that produces it uh, secures and names as the uh, benefactor of the bond, the person mm-hmm. who put it away? This thing gets some serious hair on it after a while. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. You know, so, some I do think about those things. Yeah, until
1: they straighten that out, then some companies may not want to risk getting involved with that.
2: Exactly. So, mm-hmm. right now in, in the ESG space and the oil field, you know, I, there, there's companies trying to find their niche and, and where they want to develop an expertise. For us, I I think the right thing to do is, hey, let's focus our expertise on producing the absolute lowest carbon barrels on the planet Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. because
2: we're still going to need it for a long, long time. So that's what we should do. We do it very well. We do it very good. And I think a lot of times companies make a mistake of trying to develop expertise in a wide range of areas. And at the end of the day, they become jack of all trades, but master of none.
1: Mm -hmm. I have one other quick question before we close up. And that is the actual pollution produced when you're operating, you know, the actual machines and pumps and a whole platform. Is it very
2: significant? I don't think no. In my opinion, it's not because the fuel that we use to power the generators that do all that is the natural gas that comes out of the wells. So is
1: that right? Okay, that makes sense,
2: which is the lowest hydrocarbon emissions of all the hydrocarbon fuels. It's totally impractical to run electrical cables 150 miles out into the Gulf of Mexico, especially at the voltage and amperage you would need to run that kind of equipment.
1: Yeah, yeah. We have to wrap up now. But, you know, this show actually is, I'm going to send it around to a lot of people because for young people looking for professions, this is not only fascinating, very very lucrative and phenomenal opportunities. And you even told them what universities to look into. So, you know, that's really great. So this will be great for uh, recruiting young people to get into this exciting field and well-compensated field. (laughs) So my guest today has been Louisiana-based joe lime cooler joe's the chief operating officer of beacon offshore energy llc so that was fun joe i, I learned a lot thank you so much and i'm so glad that dr lair you know he was amazing character i'm so glad that he set up this program
2: yeah well nice talking to you too and uh jay wherever you are i'm gonna have a beer and a cigar for you tonight
1: yeah for sure so this is tom harris signing out from the other side of the story